In today's podcast, we sit down with Ian Cunningham, founder of Wave9 Technologies, Inc. Ian and his company have come up with an asset management system that works primarily on conventional production right now, which employs wireless sensors, cameras, and artificial intelligence to automate tracking asset performance and monitor for environmental incidents. Transitioning from the telecom space to the oil and gas sector, Ian instantly saw an opportunity to get remote operated fields connected to the network. He has since created a unique product as well as a process to get operators the tools they need to wirelessly monitor and survey their producing assets. Although currently limited to Canada, Ian sees a tremendous opportunity for him to enter the market in the US to provide operators with value. His build-as-you-grow approach and unique perspective on process is driving his success in working with operators as he deploys new and cutting-edge technologies. I think he has a very inspiring story for anyone who's an entrepreneur looking to work with operators out in the field. The one thing that really caught my attention with Ian is his humility and his ability to listen. I think those two things combined has given him the chance to get his product out in the field with a new to market technology. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy. Hi Ian, thanks for coming on the show here today. Hey, thanks for having me Adam. So I'm really excited to dive into our conversation here today. Uh, to get us started, can you give us a quick background and introduction to Wave 9? Yeah, sure. So uh, Wave 9 uh, enables conventional onshore oil producers to reduce operating expenses while simultaneously reducing environmental risks by automating the site inspection process and reducing site visits. Uh, other monitoring solutions tend to focus on sensor data collection or elaborate computer vision, um, creating uh, some changes in the overall operation process. But by contrast, Wave 9 focuses on streamlining the process uh, the existing ins- uh, inspection process and focusing maintenance staff on the, the highest value work. Can you also give us a quick breakdown of your team and how you guys are set up there? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so we're we're a pretty small team. Uh, Wave Nine is a startup. Uh, there's myself with a background in technology and and business strategy, and uh, Parisa, who is uh, our she has an MBA. She's responsible for our accounting financial and marketing, the, the business aspects of, uh, of the organization. And we have uh, Ricardo, who is our cloud architect, Barrett, who is a hardware design engineer, and Badon, who's our data scientist. So one thing I think we should hit on real quick that I found really interesting is that you came out of the telecom space. And I think your product and your services are reflective of that. So can you give us a little bit more of a background and overview of your career path and how you ended up in oil and gas? Sure. Uh, so my, my background is in uh, electronic engineering. I was, uh, I was trained in that, worked in software development and, and firmware design originally, and then pretty quickly transitioned into uh, cellular engineering and uh, telecom in terms of project management and network design, that sort of thing. Um, but I, I grew up in Saskatchewan in Canada, and we have a lot of uh, conventional oil production in the south of the province. So I had a lot of friends and, uh, and fellow engineers working in the, the oil and gas industry. So I was kind of surrounded by that 
all the way along. And coming from telecom, we saw, you know, a lot of opportunities to use uh, communication technology in different industrial settings. And I always kind of wondered uh, why the, the conventional production didn't have a lot of that, a lot of that involved, right? So um, there was a time a number of years ago when we, we met up with some people working in the industry and talked about some of the different ways that technology could maybe play a role. And I think mm-hmm. that kind of spurred my interest to get, to get more involved, learn more about the industry and see if there was some way to kind of bridge the skills, right? Yeah. And I think when I first entered the industry, uh, we were looking at it from a land title space, uh, trying to start a land business. And what we realized was there's a ton of overlap between telecom and oil and gas. And I think what surprised me the most um, in kind of having a dialogue on both ends was just the lack of connectivity uh, between uh, oil and gas wells in the network. And that to me seemed like a huge gap in the way that the oil and gas industry was operating as a whole, especially out in the conventional plays. Um, but, you know, it seemed like the telecom world was leaps ahead, le- leaps and bounds ahead of the way that the oil and gas space was operating on uh, what seemed like a much more analog level. And that was probably about 10, 10 years ago or so. Yeah, I, I think I can definitely see that too. And the question comes up to us quite a bit at, at Wave 9 early on in the conversations we have with producers as well. Um, I think where I, when I came out of university and started working in the, in the field, uh, it was a bit lucky where I came out because Saskatchewan has a, a government-run uh, telecom and there was a pretty, pretty well-understood benefit from having good connectivity in our fields. And I think that pushed some of the private telecom uh, over the other prairie provinces in Canada to bring some better connectivity. So in terms of Canada versus the U.S., I think we might have a lot of, a lot better infrastructure uh, to begin with on a cellular level. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of the things that we ask quite often when we're, when we're talking with the U.S. producer to understand what that that infrastructure might look like to them and everything, right? Yeah. But, uh, from Canada's perspective, uh, over the last, you know, 15 or 20 years, I think we've gone from pretty light connectivity to something like 95 or 98% uh, coverage over the, the major producing areas. And wow. if there's a lot of activity anywhere, we, we see really good connection that way. Now, and I'm not sure, you know, from maybe from your perspective or in the U.S., I think that that number is probably a little bit lower. Mm-hmm. Um, but even in Canada, we, we do hear about people putting in, say, proprietary LTE networks or alternative wireless connectivity and, uh, and you know, build design build style uh, wireless connection out to some of their assets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know there's a VC group um, that's invested in a company that's doing just that. It's bringing, I think it's it is like a private LTE network that eventually ties back to the uh, the main network. I don't know exactly how it operates, but what from what I understand, they're basically just repeating the signal out to the well sites. But you know, America is so vast and. Because a lot of these, uh, I think, I mean, I don't, I don't have the knowledge, and maybe you do, but it seems like the the wi- wireless uh, telecom space 
you know, the network, uh, the phone, cellular network as we have it is all private. So when it's private, it's it's a totally different dynamic, I would think, um, when you're talking about accessibility, because it's all going to be demand based. And it doesn't seem to me like uh, a, a telecom company would want to build the infrastructure just so, you know, XYZ operator can connect to their, you know, couple hundred wells to the network. Yeah, it. I think it depends um, on a lot on the ge- uh, geography of the area. Uh, a lot depends on the economics of it, on a you know that relationship between the producer and the telecom. I think there's a lot of factors that go into it. We've been lucky, I think, in a lot of a lot of senses, and I do think there's been some sort of pressure because there most of the all the big operators in Canada are all private, and and they still have good connectivity. Uh, across Alberta and Saskatchewan, anyway, uh, Manitoba it's maybe a little bit lighter, and uh, and then BC is mountainous. So there's some uh, technical problems with radio in that in that sense. But generally, through the the flat prairie regions, we end up with a you know pretty good connectivity. But the, there are private, like when I say private LTE, I'm talking about um, like you said, the company building something on their own and then tying it back in. We do hear about some of that, and, and there's exploration of that on a case-by-case basis. I think one of the nice things about that is that you're, you're operating from a standardized um, network perspective, and, and it greatly increases the number of off-the-shelf devices and things that you can connect into the network that way, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to something that's a, that's a you know proprietary uh, radio band and everything where you're, you're putting out some equipment that doesn't necessarily play well with a lot of other systems in the network. Sure. So, uh, you know, have you, I, I guess the question, the next question is, um, and, and we're focusing on Canada right now, I think, cause it, it's a good base case. I would, I would imagine for us in the U S just thinking about what a connected environment looks like. And I want to start the conversation here cause it seems like that's the real entry point to your technology that you're actually installing on the equipment. And I definitely want to get there too. Um, but I, the question for me is, you know, how much, uh, how much of the operated wells that are out there are connected to the network as opposed to just, you know, analog um, space where someone has to boots on the ground, walk up and survey the site in order to get any type of information. Right. Yeah. So in, it depends, I think from what we've seen and uh, you know, I'm going to speak from, from the conversations that I've had and the perspectives that I've gained from producers in the field and everything, right? Uh, so it's maybe not completely generalized, but given given our industry, right? Um, most of the time, if you're dealing with older conventional production, there's going to be very little uh, connectivity there. Uh, we say like 80% of those sites might be essentially bare metal, just a pump jack and an electric motor tied into the tied into the grid, but no kind of connectivity whatsoever. Then more recently you have, uh, you have pad sites that are getting drilled and, and you might have a lot more, uh, connectivity going in during the drilling process Mm -hmm. there, maybe traditional equipment and everything. Mm -hmm. But what we, the thing that we are really trying to bring to producers is a, a field wide, uh, basis for automating the inspection of all of their well sites. And so you, you have to have everything on a base infrastructure uh, to just begin with that, right? 
And so in order to get there, um, those bare metal sites, you need to have the, the minimum of, of what's required in order to get everything going. And so we, we looked around actually, uh, before starting wave nine, we, we looked for hardware that was kind of off the shelf that could be put in to inexpensively connect in all of those bare metal sites. In addition to the ones where you had the sort of traditional, uh, SCADA design build equipment going in. Mm-hmm. And we didn't really see much. There's some options, but, uh, they weren't inexpensive enough to justify the economics on a, on a field-wide basis, and that led us to develop a hardware solution um, in order to kind of fill in those gaps. And then once you have that, now you can start collecting data off of this field-wide network and start to do some really interesting things with it. Yeah. But and I, go ahead. Oh, I, just to even say that you need to have that that initial infrastructure of some kind of connectivity level, and then some kind of inexpensive collection uh as a basis before you can start to do anything really interesting on the analytics side so let's talk about your equipment um that you're installing out in the field can you give us a breakdown of what is uh, all included in that package of equipment that you're bolting on to the uh to the pump jack yeah sure so so when we uh we started out by going out and having a conversation with a whole bunch of production managers and trying to paint a picture of what the inspection process looked like for these conventional assets. And what we heard was a pretty standard story where you need to know whether the well is operating. You need to be able to see what's going on at the wellhead in case there's a leak. And then there's a, a few other other metrics that maybe you want to meter. So things like pressure or the ability to know whether there's flow uh, product flow in the pipes and things like that, right? So what we did is we we put together a very bare bones uh, communication system that's mm-hmm. completely independent. There's a solar power the panel the solar panel that powers the whole thing, and then uh, that communications block has a few sensors that are tied into it. Uh, power sensor to monitor the the motor uh, and uh, a camera that's pointed at the wellhead, and then we have uh, a number of standard instrumentation inputs that can be used for things like pressure sensors or temperature uh, that can tell you whether there's there's flow, things like that, flow meters if you if you want to go all the way there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, we've been dabbling in some other things uh, that might help with uh, with mechanical uh, health assessments as well. But that's that's the core right now is the power sensor camera and then uh, four instrumentation inputs. Okay. And so right now, I think probably a lot of questions, the question that would come to most people's mind is how many different um, package uh, packages of, of your equipment do you have installed right now out in the field? Yeah, so we've got, we started this, uh, the first field trial was last winter. And uh, and over the course of that time, we've done a few more field trials. This, the Wave 9 is a startup. We didn't really cover that yet, but we've been around for a couple of years now. And, uh, and so we have one commercial deployment with uh, a producer in Canada. And uh, that one was an economic assessment of, uh, of the equipment and everything. So we went out on 20 wells with them. And that was earlier this spring. So the intention was to be rolling that up now, uh, scaling up. But of course, then the downturn hit and everybody's got their, their capital budgets are all frozen now, right? So 
we're kind of in wait and see mode with that. Um, but the, the intention is to scale that up, uh, potentially to, uh, 500 sites if, uh, if things lighten up later this year or into next year. And we have, uh, another, uh, another prospect that we've been talking to pretty deeply about different integration points and things, um, for, uh, a hundred site install on injection wells. And, uh, the, the process is a long one though. So one of the things that we've seen, uh, as we go through all this is that it's, it's, takes a lot of time to understand everything that's that's needed in order to um, build the system in a way that works well with all the other systems that are in play at a producer and make sure that what we're doing is is uh, producing output that uh, really makes the job easier for the guys in the field and also gets data to the back office in a way that's uh, easy to use and integrate into other systems, right? Yeah, and I think... The interesting, I, there's kind of two things that I'm really curious to talk to you about. And, you know, the story starts out with a, a deal that we're looking at right now where, you know, in theory, I, you know, we're thinking that we can increase production by 30% just by change of uh, some of the operations around these old conventional wells. And for me, I think it's really interesting that you took the approach at Wave 9 to go after conventional fields first um, when it seems like, you know, getting equipment installed on a new site would be a less, uh, I guess, involved or maybe less invasive because, you know, production hasn't started on that that site and therefore, you know, hooking up equipment is not going to disrupt any current operations. But you actually took the approach of uh, going after those conventional fields. And it, it's, you know, I, I, I think for me, that's really interesting in, in a lot of ways. And so can you talk about, you know, one, why, why conventional fields? And also, two, you know, what are the biggest data points that if you had access to, you think you can uh convert into really meaningful data for the operator to help increase productivity out in the field? Sure. So there's, um, I think there's a, a few kind of points of philosophy around the whole thing, right? The, the first one is that uh, we've heard pushback against, uh, you know, my, my guys have, you know, three, four different logins and uh, they don't like having all these different systems that they got to, log into and, and do their work on. And then it's different in this case from that case. And then you got some information coming in from this system and some coming in from that system, right? I think that there's a, there's some value in, in having something from a field wide basis, uh, that works on all, all of your equipment, uh, mm -hmm. doesn't, you know, it doesn't only work on the pad sites, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I think the one of the other things is that we are very focused on on a specific process, and uh, that's the inspection, right? So mm -hmm. the inspection happens on all of those sites. You have to go to the the older conventional drills that have been around for a long time. You have to go to those new uh, sites that maybe you're you're drilling a bunch of pads, and uh, and you have that same process everywhere. Ideally, that process has worked in the same way. We don't want to disrupt it, right? It's an incremental improvement. And we, what we did is we spent a lot of time understanding how that works and then trying to figure out, okay, where is a very concrete value that can be obtained? And what we concluded was it's, it's the, 
reduction in the site visits, right? So that doesn't mean just the pads or just the whichever, right? It's mm-hmm. all sites. So you want to reduce all of the site visits and get your guys to manage three to five times the number of, of wells they are today. That solution has to be a uh, something that will apply across the field, right? Mm-hmm. So the second thing is, okay, what do you do with that data afterwards, right? And we've seen a lot of systems that have uh, make a lot of promises around things like predictive uh, maintenance, or you know, we're gonna we're gonna take all of this information in and and produce some kind of output that uh, might dramatically optimize or dramatically improve your production based on looking at a bunch of different uh, sensor points and things. And that's an interesting, promising area, right? But mm-hmm. in a way, when we look at it, you've got, if you, you know, if you have 80% of your sites are bare metal sites, step one probably isn't to, you know, layer on a whole bunch of information and try to uh, use very sophisticated, complex models. Step one is just like, look at the, look at the inputs, right? You're, you're spending all this money on having somebody drive there every day just don't have them drive there every day, right? If you, how long does it take you to react to a problem? If that well goes down and a guy shows up once a day, uh, if you can react to it within an hour instead of, you know, 12 hours or more on average, there's a big benefit there. And it's a lot more measurable and direct and something that you can realize right away, right? So we just, we just moved in that direction, I think. Um, the, The conversations pulled us towards that maintenance process. And then, there for sure is something on the other side of it, right? If you have that, once you have that data coming in and in our case, you're doing something with it immediately and driving, driving that data back down in a very presentable, simple format to the operator, they can act and, and uh, focus their work on a daily basis much better. But now you have this residual data, right? And you can have the flexibility to add in other sensors and things as you figure out the different parameters that are going to help you optimize. Mm-hmm. But, that requires bringing that data into a central, a central repository. And if you think about it specifically on the, only the high producer side, your picture is, it, it's okay, right? Like it's, you're focusing on the, the wells that are producing the most and everybody's attention is on those ones, right? Mm-hmm. But in the end, like the, the data that you have coming in, it's valuable no matter where you're, you're bringing it in from, right? And you might have, observations and things that come out of that as long as you're able to centralize that information and and process it in the back office right Mm. so how i mean how do you deal with because in my mind i think about the data problem myself like i you know i have an abundance of data in front of me at all times but you know only so much of it am i willing to use because of the amount of work that's required to go into uh, utilizing that data. Now, granted, there might be a lot of hidden value once I figure out how to manipulate it, but you know, it's, it's a cost benefit analysis of my own time and energy. And when I'm looking at it, I'm saying, you know, uh, if it's not clear to me up front, then, you know, it's going to be hard for me to get motivated to dig into it. Um, especially when I've got a lot of other things going on. So is Mm -hmm. that, you know, is that a pretty common kind of response you get out in the field and what are you doing to get around that to get um, some early adoption of your, uh, of your solution here? Yeah. So I think there's, there's a few, there's a few things there, right? So the, the data that's coming in, 
you have this flood of data now you need to do something with it the first problem is humans can't process it all right you have so much that's flowing in you just literally can't go through everything and and in order to actually make sense of it we have to do something to make it a manageable problem and something might be filtering it something might be focusing only on a subset of it you like you said you have too much so you you pick apart a little bit of it and then work on that right mm-hmm. ai is is kind of the promising solution there where as long as you can model out whatever you're uh, trying to assess with it and apply an ai model now the ai is no longer cons- no longer has that scale constraint right you can feed all of that in and start to to get uh, the computational power out of it that humans just like can't keep, can't keep up with right so that's one thing from our standpoint so we use we use that on uh, the way that point is relevant to us is that like i said we have a camera focused on the wellhead right and so if you if you we take a number of pictures through the day there's still photos and uh, those still photos are there so that we can detect whether there's contamination or not at that site there's solutions out there where somebody has a camera and uh, they take some photos and then they feed them to the operators but you can think like if if your goal is reducing site visits and now you have that operator instead of managing 50 sites they're looking at 150 or 200 that as their area of responsibility right that's potentially you know 800 to a thousand photos or more a day and out of that ideally you know 800 to a thousand of them are all just normal sites humans are terrible at looking at normal data and then picking out small anomalies from it if you're bombarded by a continuous stream of the same thing you you don't pick out any anything right so that's this is a really good example where you have this data deluge of data that's coming in and and you need a system that's completely automated to do that analysis for you and then once you have that so we we send all these photos through uh, an ai model and then we use that to identify the sites that a human should look at right so it doesn't it's not the be all end all and that's not the way that AI works. It's probabilistic, right? So, but it can give you a confidence level. So instead of a thousand photos, we can, we can reduce that considerably and say, look, these are, these are the, you know, 10% or, or fewer that you should really be paying attention to because we think that there's a potentially a leak starting here, right? And, uh, and by doing that, you, you cut that job so much, right? And I think it's uh, it's applicable to other areas that we're not dealing with on the optimization side on uh, exploration was kind of discussed in one of the earlier uh, earlier podcasts. I think that there's a lot of opportunity for that. Uh, once you have the process set up to ingest and use that data, but it also clashes with the, the kind of mentality around, um, you know, starting looking at innovative new solutions and trying to figure out how to integrate them into systems that typically rely on, you know, 99.999% reliability and things like that, right? There's a, there's a conflict that comes out of that a little bit with applying some of these, these tools and you have to weigh the, the, uh, you know, the cost benefit there. Um, right. Now, one other thing that, that, that we, you, in the earlier question, you said, you know, where it's one of the areas that if you had the data, it would be helpful. This is one of them for us. The amount of, of photo data that we can collect 
is dependent on you know the number of sites that we have in the field and the collaboration that we have with with the producers we're working with and if if that collaboration is open and transparent and there's a lot of data sharing and everything that happens it's mutually beneficial because if we get access to that kind of photo data it just greatly increases the effectiveness and accuracy of the system right and then once that's in place that benefits the producer directly so, so that area you- is, is one of the yeah. And so that's an interesting kind of topic for me because in us and negotiating deals, you know, in upstream oil and gas assets, uh, coming up with creative ideas to um, give value to the other side to where they're willing to do something is always a, a mental exercise. And I imagine for you, it would be even more so like when I'm thinking about it, you know, what, 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 what can I do to convince an operator to give me their data um, is, is a hard, hard thing to think about because I, I, they're not just going to give it to you for free, I would imagine. So, you know, just out of the namesake of collaboration, they're going to want to f- get some sort of value out of that. And I think in my mind, the things that kind of come first to mind would be uh, something along the lines of, you know, a discount on the the product or on a subscription uh if if you share data and uh as long as there's some sort of an anonymous um you know security around that information another kind mm-hmm. of thought would be um you know i don't know some sort of back back in value or future discount once uh, you're able to prove i don't know so, so have you had that exercise in your mind and, and what, what are kind of the, the things that seem the most prominent to you to get access to that data that um, might otherwise be really tight holds and um, something they want to keep confidential? Yeah. So I, I think there's been variance in the, the conversations that we've had. Some of our customers are more open than others around sharing that information. Um, Early on, you know, when we were still in the development and sort of proof of concept stage, we were working with the the first lead customer, the one that I mentioned is thinking about scaling up now. And we just laid it out on the table. We said, you know, this is what we think is possible with this. We we need some help with it because it's going to take a long time if we are, you know, digging it up ourselves, right? Um, but if you have anything that will help, please, you know, let us know, right? And, and they, uh, right away, they came back and they said, you know what, here's, uh, here's a bunch of photos for you to, to work on, right? Here's some examples of the types of things that are normal, the types of things that are not normal, the kinds of things that we want you to find, right? And there's some value, uh, you know, without a transactional kind of thing there, there's some value in it for them anyway, because especially with AI, as you're training that system, it gets trained on the data it's seeing, right? So, if you want things to work well on the types of wells that you have, the, the types of sites that you're working with, right? It's valuable to, to expose that to the model so that the model is a little bit tailored towards that, or at least it, it fills in its gaps, right? And uh, in other cases, there, there's been less collaboration in that sense. And then, you know, later on down the road, you might go, okay, well, how are things working? Well, we'd like the accuracy to be a little higher there's a great solution, right? Just yeah. provide us, provide us some data on specifically those types of, of sites. Right. And that accuracy is going to be much higher, but it requires that back and forth. 
And in, in order to foster it, one of the things that we do right off the bat is uh, we're very, very transparent about our our development process, the things that we're doing, the ways that we will share our data uh, as it comes through our system, share it back to the producer's sites that that information flows right through like there's a lot of openness that we we try to create right off the bat and and it goes as far as saying you know there are skills that we have that can be applicable outside of just uh the solution we're offering things like cloud experience or um you know how to centralize some of that data uh the importance of change management as you're dealing with a process here that might change over time and and things like that that we can draw on and just offer up. And I think that kind of as a startup, when you when you look at things as a partnership and a and a collaboration right out of the gate, it just fosters a better, more open relationship with the people you're you're talking to. And I think that's been helpful along the way too. We don't you know we don't mind sharing what we've got in our experience wise, and uh, hopefully that gets reciprocated, right? Yeah, and I imagine that's pretty hard as an entrepreneur because it's this. I mean, you're you're constantly torn between, you know, just getting business, getting cash in the door, uh, versus finding the right customer to build out a relationship with. Because um, ultimately, it, it's that relationship that I think in a in this type of situation where collaboration is so keen, you know, you, you need a quality uh, customer on the other end. And, you know, at the same time, I mean, maybe, maybe that's just, you know, the early adopters are going to have to be collaborators anyways. Is that, uh, you know, someone that's going to reject your, your, your product is probably not the right customer anyways. It's it's the one that says yes is just by nature of being an early adopter. um, One who is also prone to collaborate. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's pretty much it. Right. If you, as a startup, especially, excuse me, <coughs> as a startup, if you go out and you start talking about some of this stuff with a prospect and, you know, they right away push back and they're like, well, you know, we, we don't want to share our data. We're interested in this, but we don't want to share our data. We don't really want to talk to you. We don't really want to interact by tying this into other systems and things or ex- at least exploring that or, you know, at, at the very bare minimum sitting down and saying, yeah, you know, these are the challenges that we have. These are the things that we see as opportunities, you know, and, and starting to create ideas and things like that. Then they're, they're not an early adopter, right? They're going to be a laggard at the best. They might not just be interested in your solution at all. Right. And so you need to use that as a startup. You need to be using that information to, uh, to filter and spend your time, working with the, the people who really are into it, that get it and understand the value that's coming out of it and, uh, and believe in it with you. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we see people, when we talk with people, we, we get a feel pretty quickly for, for where they sit on it. And, you know, our opinion, our, the way we see things going, right. Is that there's an opportunity here for the companies that are, that are at the forefront of this to really benefit from it. And especially in this kind of, environment you know there was some talk about consolidation and what might happen that way out of uh out of this uh this whole downturn and everything in one of the earlier podcasts and i think that you know the consolidators are going to be those with with processes that are efficient and and scale very well and have um you know have been looking at this this cost effective production 
and and they get it right those the people that are really keenly tied into that they get it the ones who just don't want to deal with it and want it to kind of go away um you know they're not paying attention to how to how to bring more efficiency to their operation to begin with and i think that once you get into a crisis with the with pricing and everything that starts to become painful so you know i i think you've really talked a lot about process and i know process is really important to you I wonder how much of the process that's out there is um, just redundancies uh, in the field when we're talking about site inspection and uh, surveillance and supervision um, versus, um, you know, redundancies to the extent of inefficiencies um, versus, um, you you know, I I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but it seems to me like Mm -hmm. once you get in a certain habit, when it comes to a process, it's really easy to keep adding extra steps on um, as a checkpoint, which is just, I think, human nature. But as time evolves, I would imagine that it just gets more and more redundant over time to the point where um, you're, you know, you could potentially be spending significantly more time on something than you might have originally set out to do just because you're trying to capture one problem. Like, let's say that, you know, one well is prone to leaking. Well, now suddenly you've introduced this process to assume that all wells are leaking like that one well. And now you've just created an inefficiency and redundancy um, out in the field that really should have just been an isolated incident of surveying this one well or creating some sort of process in place for if a well is showing signs of you know, leakage, then, you know, then you move this into that process lane. I mean, so for you, how much of that is just a process issue um, versus um, just a a time of what it takes to move around between wells and and survey different sites in a day? Yeah. So there's a, we have some, um, educational background in uh in process uh i don't come out of manufacturing or anything like that but i I know some of the best practices and tools in that space right and i think it's interesting to think about the way that the the process of manufacturing and reliability and yield uh kind of corresponds to the process of of producing oil and maintaining sites and doing asset management right I think there's some parallels, but I think that, uh, and, and there's a wide variety of ways of approaching this, but companies that pay a lot of attention to kind of the lean uh, process where you're, you don't ever take your process as a static, this is the way we do things forever kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, things might get added on to it. Hopefully those things that are added on are added on for some value, but that has to be reassessed continually over time. So ideally a process is is also subjected to uh, a management of continuous improvement right mm-hmm. and uh and that's not just technology that's human human processes human interactions paperwork everything that goes along with the whole thing right mm-hmm. but by assessing systematically assessing different components of that process procedures methods of doing things technology and, uh, and looking for the ones that work well and keeping those and looking for the ones that are creating waste, whether that waste is, uh, 
human time or cash or driving around to places you don't need to be driving around to, right? There's always sources of, of potential waste and you need to, uh, to be efficient. You need to keep looking for those, uh, the, the biggest stones and pulling them out to keep that whole process moving fluidly. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a, there's a big focus on the risk associated with certain things in the, when we look at the oil and gas uh, maintenance and, and production process, things like, you know, safety. And I'm, again, I'm going to speak from the Canadian perspective. There may be differences uh, sure. because a lot of this comes from, you know, regulatory influence and everything. Right. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but safety is paramount pretty much to every company we've ever talked to. That's number one. Like you want your guys coming home. Right. So there's a lot of process that gets added on, on top of things to, to deal with that, right? Like work permits, uh, you know, PPE, um, different, different components of cost and things that are legitimately added to the entire operation in order to maintain safety. Then you have environmental, uh, risks like, uh, spills and the financial and uh, reputational impacts that go along with that and the social pressures. And there's been a lot of, a lot of things done there too. And in Canada, at least a daily inspection is, is, uh, essentially the de facto standard for how assets are inspected and monitored. And that's, that's pretty much universal. The only way to move, uh, back from that or to, to not do daily inspections would be to, both, uh, well, reduce other risks, environmental and, and operational risks at the same time as you reduce the sites. So there's a, there's a balance that has to happen there, right? And, and I think that the, the only way to get there is to analyze different solutions that can potentially open that up. So if you look at the safety thing, for instance, right? Uh, the goal here is to keep your employees safe. Make sure that there's no injuries, no deaths in, in the course of your operations and that Everybody is, is looked after with an appropriate level of, of safety process, right? But if you can eliminate that entirely by not having them in exposed to hazardous locations, that's also a solution, right? Um, you're still going to have the same processes, but you're not going to have to implement them as often if the exposure level is reduced, right? So, so risk has many flavors. And I think that, um, that's a big part of, of making decisions around all of this, right? Uh, when we think about like, okay, the added cost of, of, you know, putting wave nines equipment out there, it has to be, it has to be valuable. It has to be productive. It has to reduce your overall operating expense, not increase it for the sake of monitoring environmental parameters on a well that you haven't been monitoring environmental parameters on, right? Obviously the, the value of reducing that risk has to be, uh, has to be beneficial to you, right? So uh, I think that our philosophy is not to like sell the technology everywhere. It's to sell helpful technology in the places that it really makes sense. And that's why we focus so much on understanding the process and the impact on the people who are part of that. Right. Mm-hmm. It, to me, it seems like you kind of need training wheels almost with technology to where you can get the operator comfortable with releasing some of that human, um, you know, that human element, that human, yeah. um, skill set with technology, what, what do you do to, to, to give an operator enough comfort level around that transition to where you can eventually just taking those training wheels off completely? Yeah. So I, 
the early conversations that we had, one of the things that, that came up very early on was adoption of technology. Like there's been attempts in the past to bring this kind of automated monitoring into the field and uh, for various reasons they didn't catch. And we explored those, right? So one of the big ones was how, uh, how much data do you create for the, the operator or the pumper uh, that they have to process, right? Ideally, the ideal is that they just do their job, right? You, you don't give them anything more than the an information they need at the moment that they need it, and it just directs the workflow, right? You don't get in the way. And, uh, and that kind of helps a lot with the training wheel problem because a lot of systems that are out there require, they collect raw data, and then they require the people presented with that data to analyze it. And the, the types of people that, that uh, are in these jobs, uh, that's not what they, they didn't go to school to become, a, you know, a computer scientist or some kind of data, data analyst or data scientist, right? Yeah. Um, they're, they're there doing their job. They, they responsibly and reliably keep all those assets working uh, by doing the things that they do every day, right? And you want them to keep doing those things. But use the technology in a smart way so that it, it doesn't create this training wheel problem, right? So what we did is we spent a lot of time understanding, okay, what, what information is relevant? When is that information relevant? What do you need? What kind of format should that be presented in so that it's not, uh, not cutting into their time during the day, but also helps uh, make that process more efficient, right? And, and we settled on a uh, dashboard system with, uh, with a bunch of cards that are listed. The, any site where, where there's an issue, it bubbles to the top. So when you open up, it's just a basic smartphone app. When you open up the app, you see right away which wells are, uh, are like alarming or presenting some manner of problem or need to be, you know, there's, uh, there's indicators to indicate which wells should be reviewed for their photos and things like that. But those that are working properly and they're not, uh, you know, not in need of inspection or, or anything like that, those ones fall to the bottom. They're, they're pulled out of the operator's attention, right? So we filter. We do a lot of filtering to keep it so that essentially the training wheels are kind of built in to the system. And the operator just uses a, a format that they don't need to learn too much. They, everything is very intuitive. Um, and, and then when you, when you do take a look at what's going on, it presents you with as much of a virtual presence as possible. So we had some production managers say, in order to use this, I want to see it, I want to hear it. And that's kind of the, we've kept that in mind from day one that, you know, when a, when a person opens up our application and goes to, goes to a site, like I'm finger quotes, like goes to the site on the, the app, right? Uh, they should be virtually going to the site seeing what's happening there, seeing all the parameters that they would be checking without any gaps, right? Uh, and have it all presented in a way that doesn't require them to, you know, be looking through graphs or reams of data to try to figure out what's happening. Yeah, and I imagine, like, that's where the process background really helps because I think about, I have a personal example of, you know, trying to build out a turnkey Salesforce system for our sales team. Um, and 
I ended up designing something overly complicated that they just didn't want to get into and understandably so because, uh, because the thing was just too heavy with uh, too many different required, you know, entry points and, and so on and so forth. So I imagine like when I hear you talking about this, it, it sounds like, you know, what your approach is just spot on. I mean, you, and it matches kind of some of the other things I've heard and um, from a previous podcast uh, with uh, Evan Anderson and David Forsberg, you know, the key was point and click. And it, it sounds like you've really accomplished that here uh, with your solution that makes it a lot more intuitive than, you know, some of the other thought. I, I'm not saying that I don't know what the, the competition looks like, but I, yeah. from, you know, what you're describing, it sounds like a really great approach to, to solving the problem. It's, it's worked well for us. And I, I think it like, as we, it's a part of the collaboration and everything is that's why this is so important, right? It, you as a tech type person, right? Someone coming out of telecom for me, I don't, I, I didn't work in, in the space. I needed to approach this with humility and ask a lot of questions and let, let the team be guided, right? We weren't going to come in and say, Hey, we've got this great solution. You should use it. Here it is. Uh, what we did is say, what should it be? And then we very quickly went through iteration after iteration and said, okay, is this, how does this look? Is this better? What do you think about these options? Right. And then eventually once we got to a point where that collaboration is very open and your relationships are built well, we had uh, operation staff saying to us, Hey, you know what I'd really like when, when you do alarm that there's a, you know, the, the site is offline. I don't have any power there. And I get this alarm. When I click on that, I want to see a picture then, not, you know, randomly during the day, because if it's down, I need to go and drive out there. Well, that's a great idea, right? So we very res- were very responsive to those things. We built that over the course of the next month or so and implemented it in the app. And we took it back to them and said, okay, like, how does this work? Is this what you wanted, right? Does this make it easier for you or, you know? And, and having that open communication and kind of co-creation and collaboration is key in, in that. I, I think if you try to design something that will work for people from some sort of top-down approach, it just, you're never going to get it quite right. But if you let, if you take what those people already know to be true, right, the, the things that they wish their job was like, right, the, the, the key challenges and things that they that they fall on, uh, on a daily basis and think, you know, I really wish this was just a little bit easier this way or that way and make it an open type of, uh, feedback and input and then do it right. That, that makes a lot of difference. And that's been our philosophy, like day one, right until today. Right. And so for me, when I'm thinking about what you're saying right now, I think it really embodies the kind of scrum process. And I really like that you know, approach here because your, you know, your vision for what the product is, isn't getting in the way of the invention through the relationship, it sounds like. And that to me sounds like a really successful way to run a tech startup is you're starting out with a very, um, I don't want to call it basic, but, you know, a foundational idea that, you know, makes really good fundamental sense as uh, something that a company would be willing to adopt. And then 
using that as your entry point into the company. And then once you've entered, you're then more free to collaborate with the company and create value alongside of them, um, which brings you into a whole new space that you might not have otherwise anticipated. And you mentioned that with the cloud computing and everything else. I mean, is this is this kind of embodying um, what you're saying right now? Is is that is that a well well reflected statement? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's exactly what we what we try to do each time. And it's it's funny, you know, the the reactions that we get typically on the first call with someone, right? Uh, it takes a while to get there because usually somebody's like, okay, you're trying to sell me a replacement to this other technology or whatever. Right. And, and they're kind of, you know, sell me on it, prove it to me, tell me what you're going to do. And, and it takes a little bit of time because they're so used to that kind of approach that somebody coming in and saying, I'm not trying to sell to you today. I just want to understand this process from you, your perspective uniquely right and and learn about the different the different aspects of it and share what we've heard from other people and then search for this kind of uh improvement over time that's uh, they must not hear it from too many other people because it's <laughs> it takes some time to get past it but once you do then then i think it opens up all kinds of interesting conversations yeah things that we've you know we've we've never we don't work on the the uh back end uh, integration of this data into other systems for like optimization or, or reservoir management or anything like that. Right. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's problems that people are dealing with to try to figure out how to get that data from here to there. And we're, we're talking to them about the tools that they can use to do that. And just saying like, you should look here, you should look there. Right. Like, like at some point that's going to help. Right. And it's, it's really, I, I love it when we get to that point where I see that shift happening and it's not about, uh, you know, the ideas start flowing to us and saying, hey, you know, you guys were doing this and that, but what if you did this, right? Like if you did that and it seems like a super simple thing, then I could totally see putting this here, 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 and here. Like, is that possible? Right. Mm. And you're like, you know, then you can take that wherever you go. You know, uh, that's great. Yeah. So that's, I think, a really important lesson here. And, um, I mean, what are some some of your big takeaways to having that conversation? And I guess another question is like, how long did it take to get you to a point to where you could have that person on the other line open up a little bit and start to really dialogue about what problems they're facing and, um, you know, what, what they wish they could solve? Because uh, I imagine a lot of the time, like you said, it's like, what are you selling? What do you want? You know, how are you going to create value? Um, sure. Send me a brochure. Like, how do you, how do you get past that to where you're having a conversation about, you know, really um, simple, I guess, things that are really comfortable for them to talk about that, that you can then come in and, and give some ideas on the technology side? Well, uh, I think one of the most effective things that I've seen uh, that's worked for us is uh, some of that just help in, in areas where you're clearly not selling something, right? Like we're not a management consulting business, but we have a couple of people on the team who've done that, right? 
And, and so we understand process. We understand the importance of change management, especially as it applies to something in this space. Now, we're not going to be the, the person that comes in and puts together a change management plan for you or anything, but uh, operations is not a place where change management tends to be an everyday type activity, with, at least with the managers that we've spoken to. And they recognize that this is going to be difficult, right? That, that digital transformation and, and that kind of thing is going to be something where there's gaps, there's skill gaps. And so just by giving them the resources uh, to go and do some self, you know, research and things like that, or uh, a little bit of guidance, it's not anything related to our business directly, right? Indirectly, hopefully it helps because we're promoting these, these great ideas for, uh, for uh, management improvements, right? But, but you're helping people, right, with a, with a problem. And then once they see that you're doing that, they, I think that a lot of times that kind of helps open up the conversation to say, okay, like this person isn't just trying to sell me something. They're, they're actually trying to help me improve or, or help me address this challenge that I mentioned to them. And they're not looking for anything out of it. Um, now I'll engage a little bit more and, and the, the relationship tends to open up a little bit. And then that kind of fosters this more candid back and forth, right? Uh, it takes a long time. You asked about the, the length. Like the first time uh, between our first call with our lead customer and the point where we were having some of these conversations, maybe three months had gone by. A number of conversations had happened in between. And there are some, uh, some factors that kind of helped even in that case move us a little bit quicker. In other cases, we've talked with people, like there's a, a couple of companies we've talked with uh, over six months ago, and we're still trying to kind of open that door a little bit, right? But it's hard to tell whether it's because, you know, it's just not what they're thinking about right now, or whether, you know, it, it's uh, that, that they're more closed off that way, like who knows, right? But I, I think that the approach of, of being transparent and open yourself uh, helps, yeah. So I'm curious, you know, looking at your website, um, it's, it's a technology solution, right? But it almost sounds to me like an entry point would be, hey, we're a field operations process improvement team that has technology to support that um, integration. And that, that to me, I, you know, I, I'm just curious because that seems to me we, we've talked about, you know, technology, you know, oil and gas companies being uh, technology companies um, who are just happen to be in the oil and gas sector. But it seems to me like the other way to look at it right now is that, you know, the op the companies are operated from an oil and gas space who are, you know, uh, slowly adopting technology. So would it would it not be better to kind of match the customer and say, Hey, we're we're experts out in the field, and we know how to um, make your operations way more effective. And oh, by the way, we've also got some really great technology that um, you know makes it even better. Yeah, you know, you could be right. Uh, when we communicate, we try to communicate that message about the that we're not we're not a company selling technology. What we are is we're selling an improvement to a particular process, right? And it's it, it's something we've wrestled with to try to understand how we should best 
characterize that, how we should present it and, and present the things that go along with it. Right. And, uh, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm interested to explore that a little bit later, maybe like, uh, off the call about what you see in the website, how you see that kind of angle for, for us to communicate and how we can improve that kind of communication. Right. I think it, I think it's a really relevant statement. Yeah. Because when I think about it, you know, you've got all the information, you're talking about all these different problems out in the field, you get the process, you understand the pain points. And it's like, you could come in with a non-digital solution to start. And then once the customer gets comfortable with you, it's, it's like, Hey, you know what, actually, um, we also got this really great technology that is going to make it way better. And that, to me, just sounds like a way of really easing the entry point and then, you know, just enhancing it once you're in the door. Yeah. 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 I think, uh, you know, I'm, I think when we, when we usually make that initial connection, there's some stakes in the ground, the way that people think about this one way or the other. Right. And uh, we're always trying to refine that. I, you know, when you look at it from, so from, from the perspective that, that you mentioned earlier that you've looked at a couple of companies to just come in and do some of that kind of, that kind of work and then work on improving the efficiency of the assets and things like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the challenges that we lay out on the website, you know, here's a perfect example, right? Do you see a gap there that, that, uh, it's an interesting challenge or job specific job that, uh, that when you look at that, you know, that you'd share, I guess. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, when you're looking at a, a specific uh, opportunity that way, I don't know, maybe it's something for us to talk about later, right? But but yeah. that's the kind of thing that we're looking for, right? Is to have that conversation that uncovers those kinds of gaps mm-hmm. and looks for looks for that and, and figure out ways of, uh, of improving it, right? Yeah, because I think we're even doing the same thing right now. I mean, the last three years... Uh, we've, we've bought and sold a lot of the assets that we've acquired. We're now in a private equity position, but the thing is, is, um, you know, when you're looking and going into, uh, a collaborative space with another entity, you have to be really careful about the way that you present yourself to them, right? Like our biggest challenge is, Hey, we don't want to be classified as just another brokerage company. Like we're not a broker. We're not going to go in and just make money off of you by acquiring. No, we're a collaborator. We're coming in with our own capital and we want to work alongside of you. And when you re-gear or retool that message, it has a totally different effect on the person on the other side that's receiving that information. And I imagine with technology, it's it's a really similar issue, right? It's it's like, hey, I'm coming in with this new technology that's going to bolt onto your qu- equipment. It's like, whoa, slow down. Like, I, I don't really know how I feel about that. Versus, <laughs> hey, we, we've we've got a lot of experience on field operations and how to make it way more efficient. We'd love to sit down with you and just see what your current process is and and then discuss, you know, what some of the other operators are doing out in the field to to improve those processes. Um, both with and without yeah. technologies, that to me seems like a really easy conversation as opposed to, you know, what might trigger a guarded reaction when you say, you know, we're a technology company. And yeah, yeah. And, and I think we like, it's something that we work on continually to, and, you know, as a, as a startup, who's 
we're two years old now. Uh, you know, this is a continually shifting thing, right? You you have these conversations, you understand a little bit better, and then you have another conversation, you, you shift a little bit more, right? And uh, and I think that in the end, the the thing that you're delivering, that we're delivering, that that somebody in the space is working on, right? Is there's it has to be related to the business process, like. Mm-hmm. Technology for the sake of technology is just a toy. It, it right. doesn't do anything, right? You have to be solving a, a business problem in a measurable way. And when you can show that that's, uh, that that's real, materialized, and the value is being produced, that's when you start to really move forward, right? So mm-hmm. like, I, I think for me, the lights, the lights kind of shifted. When with our lead customer, the point when things really hit the floor and started, started moving ahead, was a phone call that came to say, you know, okay, we're that field that we deployed, we're moving our, our operator back to like once every two or three days now. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it was just a a four year information kind of call. Right. But like, it was a, it was a thanks. Like we see it happening now. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and for us, it was like, Oh, all right. Now, now we can actually start to, to see the output of that and, Mm -hmm. and the effect on the process. But yeah, I think you're right. Like, I, I think there's, there's ways that we could probably, uh, communicate that in a in a way that's better, and we're we're looking for it all the time to figure out how we should be positioning that exactly. Right. Yeah. Another challenge too, I think, is finding the right companies that you can align with. You know, they might not be your direct customer, but they may be someone else who you can collaborate with to achieve mutual goals. And so, in your case, I would think you know, example would be you know, like Deloitte or McKenzie, or there may be way more niche type oil and gas specific um, process operations type companies. But, you know, it's it's getting creative. And I think especially with technology, you know, early adoption technology, um, you're going to have a lot of resistance up front. And, and then, so it's all about who you can collaborate with to get your technology in the door. And it may be in, in pretty unconventional ways as far as uh, the way we typically think of it. Cause I mean, when we usually approach sales, it's like, I'm, you know, I've got a product. You're, you're the one that's going to buy it from me. And it's, it's really a simple like relationship. But I think when you're dealing with early adoption, you've got to get really creative about all the different angles that you can come in from in order to get your technology in the door. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. And, and so we've, we have explored some connections and things with, uh, with management consultants, people like Deloitte and and others in that space, people mm-hmm. who speak a lot about uh, about digital and oil and gas, right, mm-hmm. and uh, and try to foster some connections and understanding about what we're doing and look for those connections because I think when you look at it from the producer standpoint, in in a lot of ways this is a big unknown uh, area. Like I, there's this feeling every conversation where I know the idea of digital oil field is coming. I know I need to be prepared for it, but nobody's ever trained me in the types of technology and I need to wrap my head around this thing, right? That, mm. that kind of a space is, is pretty pervasive, I think. Mm. And in a lot of ways, there's a lot of activity to try to understand it, but it's a, such a huge new area that it just takes a long time to get there and you, you basically need trusted partners to help you along the way, right? As a, as a producer, the only other alternative is to hire people who are already very, very fluent 
in this kind of language, this space, the whole infrastructure that goes along with it, hire them internally and start to to use those people to guide this. But otherwise, you need to rely on on people who are expert in the space externally that, that you know are looking out for your interests, right? And mm-hmm. I hope that we're we're helping uh, our producers to see that that we can be one of those people, right? Yeah. Ian, before we uh, wrap things up here, is there any shout outs you want to give to uh, the listeners here today? Yeah, for sure. I I think Wave 9 wouldn't have been possible if it it wasn't for the efforts of our our great team and uh, a lot of the people along the way that we've had a chance to have these more in-depth collaborative conversations with. There's a few production managers at, uh, at some of our customers that I have in mind and I'm sure you know who you are if you happen to be listening to this, but, uh, you know, thanks to everybody for the efforts that they put in that way and for the really open communication that we've, we've been able to use to direct this in the right direction. Well, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. It was really a pleasure having some good dialogue with you. Yeah. Thanks a lot for the opportunity, Adam. Thanks for listening to Oil Intel. As we continue to shape the show, you're going to notice some changes to form and structure. One of my business partners, Michael Bimeford, is going to be way more active in helping to co-host future shows. And you're gonna notice a lot more activity from our guest hosts. We're really excited about the change and hope to bring a lot more value to you as a listener. As always, if you have any recommendations for future guests on the show, please visit us on our website at oilintel.com. And finally, if you're a professional or part of an organization that's looking to create some change within the business, but looking for external help, Oil Intel is here to connect you with the right people. You can send me personally an email at adam at oilintel.com. That's adam at oilintel.com. Until next time. Stay safe, stay healthy, and frack on.